we are doing a survey of the entire Bible for 2023. If you want to be part of that survey and want to be reading each day, we have little cards that are out in the entryway. Again, they're across from the coffee bar in between the two stained glass windows. We have a sign-up table there, and, and we've got cards. Each month we put out what the daily readings are. And we also have a podcast on Spotify. If you want to get signed up for that, you can talk to either Pastor David, who read the scripture today, or to myself. The listening to scripture as opposed to reading it is something in, it's new for me. I've never done it before. But I've enjoyed listening to the scripture read each day. I've especially liked when my son mispronounces words. It makes it more enjoyable. And I think to myself, it's a good thing he's reading it rather than me. Today we are coming to one of my absolute favorite Bible passages. It's the book of Ruth. When I first gave my life to Christ, I was a college student in Moorhead, Minnesota, and I attended a Bible study for young adults, and they were studying the book of Ruth. So that was important to me. So the, really the first thing is a as a new Christian trying to grow in my faith. Then when I got the first church that I was able to serve, I was appointed to be the pastor of the Centralville Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. They had an adult Sunday school class. I was going to teach it. They told me that not only did I preach on Sunday morning, that afterwards there was a class. I asked what they were studying, and guess what they were studying? The book of Ruth. I still remember asking people what they knew about Ruth, and a wonderful woman spoke up and said, Ruth is my favorite book in the Bible. I said, why is that? She said, because it's a love story. And it is a love story. The entire book is a story of these women who set out on a journey, and there's certainly love between a mother and a daughter. There's love between husband and wife. And there's certainly love between this young woman, Ruth, who ends up marrying Boaz, his love for her, and all the amazing things that come out of that. But most importantly, it's a love story because it's a love story of God caring for a family and people staying faithful in their faith. But before we get to Ruth, I want to take you back in time to September 20th, 1977 just a few months after I had graduated from high school. However, it's also the time in which a TV show, you probably know it by looking at Fonzie up here, called Happy Days, came out with an episode called Hollywood Part 3. The problem that had happened with Happy Days is they'd run out of creativity. The writers didn't know what to do, and they were struggling. It's sort of like what happens in life, right? Sometimes we sort of, things happen, and we sort of run out of our creativity, or bad things have happened, and we don't know what to do. And they discovered that Henry Winkler had been a skier when he was young, so they thought it would be a good idea to have Henry Winkler, Fonzie, jump over a shark. So do any of you remember the show? It's actually very famous. It's famous for being bad. <laughs> In fact, by 1985, that episode gets coined as a term called jumping the shark. 
It means when things have gone really bad and you don't know what to do and you do something that makes it worse, that's called jumping the shark. For somebody who is in a TV show, if they're, if they're the people who are trying to be the creative writers, it means that they literally have destroyed their show and their brand. Because not only did jumping the shark and the silliness of that episode ultimately take down Happy Days, it also had a major negative impact on Henry Winkler's career, and now it's nothing more than basically the butt of a joke. There are moments in our life when we run out of creativity, or life gets tough, or things get difficult, and we don't know what to do next. When life is tough for us, how do we keep from jumping the shark? Know what I'm saying? Those are the times when life is hard and we say to ourselves, I got to do something. And so we do something stupid. And we look back and say, all I did is made life worse. We're in the midst of something that we don't like. It's not how we want it to be. And we rush in, as the Bible say, says, where angels fear to tread. But we think we know better and we go plowing forward only to look back and say, man, my life just jumped the shark. It's an experience as Christians we don't have to have, but let's be honest, folks, and I want an amen on this. We do it to ourselves far too many times, amen? amen. And we look back, and not only do we say, how did this happen in my life, but why did I do that? When life is tough, how do we keep from jumping the shark? You see, the book of Ruth is about these women whose lives just kept getting worse. It starts with Ruth, who gets married, and then she has these two sons, and then a famine comes, and they move, and they go to the land of Moab, and it is there that her sons take husbands, and we heard that whole story in chapter 1. And then what ends up happening? A series of bad things. Now these women are living in another country, and first the husband of Naomi dies, and then the husbands of these two younger women die. The point is, they don't jump the shark. They don't go crazy. They don't go bonkers. In fact, they do the opposite. They're able to deal with all this adversity that comes their way. And amazing things happen out of this family. I like to think of these three women as sort of the female versions of Job. We often talk about the book of Job because it's a story of a guy who everything goes bad and people love it. It's the oldest book in the Bible, the first one that's written, and people go to it and they say, I just like to read Job because it reminds me when tough things happen in my life that it's not my fault. Sometimes they just happen. Well, the book of Ruth tells you the same thing. Gives you these women who are just living lives of faith and life happens in ways that they don't want it to happen. My dad used to say to me, you know, Stan, my dad was a pastor, he said people would live differently if they really believed in God's sovereignty. The problem is we talk about God's sovereignty, but do we believe it? To understand that we serve a sovereign God means that God created this world and knew we were going to be here before we got up this morning. Knew it before the foundations of the earth. In fact, the Bible says that, that God not only is sovereign and knows everything, omnipresent, omnipotent, God can even count the hairs on your head that's easier for me than it is for you. 
One of the reasons God answers my prayers, he doesn't have to take a lot of time counting hairs. But that's not the point. The point is that God knows us and loves us and cares for us. He takes care of us, even when life takes those awful turns, even when we want to jump the shark and we want to rush in and do something. If we can learn to trust in God, if we can learn that God is sovereign, then rather than rushing in and feeling like we have to do something, we get on our knees and we pray. It's what we call the war room, the place where our battles are fought, not with fists or guns, but on our knees praying to God. Because we know God is sovereign and God is in control and God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So my first question is, do you jump the shark? <laughs> Have you done that in your life? If you're honest, we would all say yes. If you're dishonest, you can get up and preach the sermon and tell the rest of us how not to make stupid decisions. Because we've all been there. We've all had something in our life where we knew that we should have left it alone, we should have prayed, we should have let God take care of it. Instead, we decide we're going to get Henry Winkler on skis and make him jump over the sharks, and that'll wow everybody, only to find out that made life worse. Because here's the thing that we need to understand this morning. Ruth and Naomi and Orpah, they had no control over the circumstances in their life. There was nothing that Naomi did that was wrong that caused a famine. There was nothing that these women did that caused their husbands to die. They just were dealt the hand that life gives to us. We like to think that life is a la carte and we get a little smorgasbord where we can pick and choose everything we want, but life is not like that. It's served up to us at the host table, and there are things in our life that if you and I were choosing, we would never choose. Amen? There are things in our family's life that we would never choose. There are things in our world that we would never choose. But like these women in the book of Ruth, the question is not, will life happen, but will we jump the shark? Ruth begins in chapter 1 with these words. In those days, when the judges ruled over Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. Get it? They had no choice. There was nothing they could do. Sort of like the people in Mississippi with a tornado. You don't turn on a little switch and say, I'm going to protect my town from a tornado. There are things that happen in this world. So a man from Bethlehem of Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And their two sons were Malon and Kelon. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then, Naomi, then Elimelech died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married Orpah, the other married Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi without her two sons, living with two daughter-in-laws. Famine, death of a father-in-law, death of a brother-in-law, death of a husband. Come on, folks. These women were dealt a pretty tough hand to play. Do you ever feel like that in life? Sometimes we get like that. We're like, how did this happen? Man, I didn't see that coming. And so we read their story, and, and it impacts us as we think about it because we have so much less control than we want to believe in life. We want to think we have control over everything. I first became a pastor in Massachusetts back in 1983. Kid comes out from North Dakota, marries the cutest girl in... 
Fort Wayne Bible College. Her name happens to be Regina. She's still here today. <laughs> two of us didn't have two nickels to rub together. We borrowed my sister's car that the driver's seat door didn't even open on our honeymoon. We had to climb in from the other side to get in the car. It was all crazy experiences. We had no money, so our honeymoon, when we came to New England, was we got to stay with an elderly woman who was a teacher at Eastern Nazarene College. She was retired, and that was our honeymoon. We got to stay with her. When it came time to move out, we didn't have any money to hire a moving van, so we sent all of our stuff out UPS. And what we had was our wedding gifts. And so now I'm in my first church. It's a year later, and I get an opportunity to meet the bishop, Bishop Bayshore. I have no idea what the subject was that day, but I do remember afterwards he said, does anybody have any questions? And I shot my hand up. I said, I have a question. I said, I grew up in North Dakota where the farmers came to church every Sunday and my dad was a pastor and they knew they had no control over the weather, so they asked my dad to pray for good crops. We knew every week when we came to church, when we talked about our faith, that it was a real thing because it impacted people's lives. How do I explain to these New Englanders who think that they control everything that they need God in their life? I still ask that question to America. Why do we think we control all this stuff that we don't control? We are not in control. God's in control. And we trust in a sovereign God even when things go poorly in our life, even when things go well, because that's what the scriptures teach us and that's how we get through life. And as the hymn says, when we've been there 10,000 years, we're not going to think about a lot of the stuff anyhow. We're just going to sing God's praise. Here's the deal. These women didn't jump the shark. In fact, rather, we discovered that Ruth, this daughter-in-law, this Moabite woman who's married into this Jewish family, she stayed faithful. She trusted. She'd built a relationship with God. She'd built a relationship with her mother-in-law. And she knew that she was going to stay faithful no matter what happened. And that's the question in our lives. You don't jump the shark if you trust in God. You don't jump the shark if you know that God still got it and I don't have to worry about it even though I don't like what's happening. Amen? That's what our faith teaches us. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Mother-in-law does what any good mother-in-law does. She says, girls, I, this didn't work. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, we love each other, but let's just leave it alone. My daughter's. Return to your parents' home. For I'm too old, Naomi says, to marry again. And even if it were possible for me to get married, and tonight I got married and four sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more better for, bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept, and Orpah, one of the two daughter-in-laws, kissed her mother goodbye. Her story's over. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Hear the difference? One person said, that's it, I'm done. You're right. You're right. Life has given me a bitter deal. I'm going to jump a shark. It's better than, than continuing on and living this life. And the other one's Ruth, and she says, no. I'm not going anywhere. We're family. We made pledges. We made vows. 
We care about each other, and we trust God, and God's got the future for us. How do you and I face adversity? What, we don't like adversity. We don't get up and say, well, the Bible's great because it teaches us of all this sin and hurt and pain in this world. Glory to God. Isn't it great? I can't wait for it. We don't like it at all. But the question is, how do we face it? The great theologian Soram Kierkegaard once said, and I've always liked this quote, faith is how we live when no one's looking. It's not about getting up on Sunday morning and impressing somebody. We can all do that. It's not about telling somebody else how to live their lives. But how about us? When things aren't going well in our life, how do we trust? How do I live when life is difficult? That's a question of faith. And that's why, yes, God is a hero of the Bible, but there are people in Scripture who have been touched by God, and they can give us a pretty good example of how to keep on keeping on when life is tough. And Ruth is one of those women. Ruth followed God's leading. See it. There it is. Class dismissed. She followed God's leading. You see, God is always leading. Even when we don't see God leading, God's always leading. Listen to what the scripture tells us. Verse 16. Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave and turn back. For wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And hey, mother-in-law, we share the same God. Your faith is my faith. Your God is my God. Let's get on our knees. Let's move forward. Isn't it exciting to trust God? That's what Ruth said. The door is open, Mom. Let's walk through it. Mother-in-law says, I don't know what door you're talking about. And Ruth says, well, I don't know either. But I'm sure there's going to be a door. She had faith, and it was going to stay with her mother-in-law. She was going to stay with God, and she was going to keep on trusting. When we do that, we don't jump the shark. When we do that, it doesn't mean that everything instantly gets better. It's not like, poof, all of a sudden, a little fairy came down from heaven, and her name was Tinkerbell, and she said, here's my magic wand, and it's all going to be good. You get that at Disney World. You don't get that in the Bible. But you do know what you get in Scripture? That when we learn to live by faith and when we live faithfully, it may not feel like it's getting better, but life is getting better. A lot of times it feels worse before it feels better, but it's still getting better. As we continue to take that step of faith, as we continue to live the way that Ruth lived, we start discovering that God truly is leading. That's why I like to say, don't jump the shark, look for new opportunities. How different would Happy Days have been if Happy Days had done something like the Doobie Brothers? Do you know what the Doobie Brothers did when, when life got tough for them? They went out and hired Michael McDonald. <laughs> they said, this guy sings well, and he's written a whole bunch of songs that aren't hits yet. Let's make them the Doobie Brothers songs. And people listen to them, and they go, that's not the Doobie Brothers. I, I know, because I used to say this. Sorry, we're going to talk about classic rock for a moment. Okay, so the Doobie Brothers were a group that I liked, and I didn't like Michael McDonald. And when the Doobie Brothers took on Michael McDonald, they made guys like me really unhappy, because I like the old Doobie Brothers sound. But the Doobie Brothers had run out of creativity. And so what they did is they saw this guy, Michael McDonald, and they said, let's just become his backup band, and we're going to be bigger than ever. And they did. They looked for an opportunity. They didn't get discouraged and frustrated and say, let's just do something awful and have everybody laugh at us. They said, how do we look for an opportunity to move forward? That's what Ruth does. 
When we trust God, and I'm not telling you the Doobie Brothers trust God, because even their name, come on, folks. Never mind. Move on. When we trust God, when we live by faith, the opportunities start to appear. They're going to be there. We don't know where they are. We don't know what they are, but they're going to be there. Chapter 2 of Ruth. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband Elimelech. One day Ruth, though they've gone back to to Palestine, one day Ruth, the Moabite, said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields and pick up stalks of grain, the grain that's left behind for anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. That's what they were told to do in, in ancient Israel. When you went out and gleaned your fields, you were supposed to leave something for people who couldn't afford it, and they would come up and they would pick up the leftovers. So Ruth said, there's an opportunity here, Mom. I'm just going to go do what we're supposed to do. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. And they said to him, Lord, Lord, be with you. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who's that cute girl over there? (laughs) That's my interpretation. Who's a young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman said, she's a young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been here working hard ever since the morning, except for a few minutes when she rested in the shelter. So Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here. And when you gather grain, don't go anywhere. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young man to not treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they've drowned. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him. Why have you done this for me? What have I done to deserve such kindness? I'm but a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz said. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of her husband. I have heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you for all that you have done. I hope to continue to please you, sir, she said. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. Basically, Ruth did everything properly. There was an opportunity. She followed what she was told she could do. She didn't ask for special treatment. She didn't go out and insist that things needed to be different. She had no control over her circumstances, but she had control over her response to the circumstances. There's the message of Ruth. We cannot control the things that happen, but we can control how we respond to the things that happen. Now, I know I've said it before, that no good sermon misses a story about North Dakota. And I've also been lacking on that for a while. It's been a while since we've had a good North Dakota story, so I'm not going to disappoint today. In the late 19th century, the Dakotas were opened up for homesteading. That meant that if you went after 1860 to rural North Dakota, South Dakota, or Minnesota, you could get a square acre of land for free. Pretty good deal. But it came with a catch. You had to go live on that land for five years. It's called proving up. 
You became a homesteader. You got a piece of land. It was basically one mile square, just a little bit under, and that became your land as long as you could permanently live on it for five years. Not acquire it and go back to Massachusetts and say, in five years, I'll come and sell the land. No, you had to live on the land. Now, there was another catch. I know because I'm from North Dakota. There were no trees in North Dakota. Trees all come later. Trees, they plant those during the Great Depression. So now you go out to the Dakotas, and you go to North Dakota, where, did I tell you it's cold there? I called my sister yesterday. I said, hi, Ann, how are you doing? She goes, we have three feet of snow on our roof and big icicles hanging down. I said, oh, it's 40 degrees and nice here. <laughs> well, that's the difference between North Dakota and Massachusetts. So you get to go to a place where it's freezing cold, and there are no trees. So what people had to do is they literally had to build sod houses. That means you cut the dirt, and you make sod houses, and you build and live in a house for five years in the cold, with no running water, no electricity, sod house, on the prairie. Closest person is a mile away. How many people want to sign up today? You do get a square mile of land at the end. Now, here's the key. People did that. And that's how the Dakotas were settled. But there's a woman named Elaine Lindgren. And she was a professor at North Dakota State University. And she was reading about all the different homesteaders. And she discovered something amazing. The more difficult the place of the homestead, the further away that means you got from Fargo, because Fargo's on the, the east side of North Dakota, and the further you got out west, the larger number of single women became homesteaders. So that's interesting. So if you go on eastern North Dakota, nice families like Stan, Regina, David, and Todd, they all show up and they all homestead. When you go to western North Dakota, in the most rural and difficult places, you got single women, to the point of where the most difficult counties had more single women than anyone else homesteading. And so she dug deeper, and here's what she discovered. In the late 19th century, if you were a widowed woman or you had gone through a divorce, you didn't have a lot of economic opportunities. And therefore, because life was difficult, women who were rugged women said, I can do better, I can do something for myself. They set out to North Dakota and they became homesteaders. Women, y'all look pretty good on this one. Now, you'd say, oh, well, it wasn't really like that. What they really did, she addresses this in her book, what really happened is there must have been some guy on the next farm over who was helping them. Absolutely not. It was the opposite of that. The one thing that happened with homesteading is if you were dishonest in any way, shape, or form and somebody else could prove that on you, they got your land for free. It's one of the ways in which people stole homesteads away from other people. They would try to find people who were cheating on the rules, and then you would get somebody else's land for nothing, which meant big industry and particularly banks came in and took people's land away from them. Here's the point. Those women did what Ruth did. They looked for the opportunity that was there in the midst of a tough situation. Are we hearing the point? No matter how difficult life gets, no matter what we feel that God has deserted us because we're like, how in the world did this happen? There's always an opportunity. And God asks us to learn to be like Ruth, to start doing everything property and look for God's grace. To say, no matter what's happened here, where's God leading and how can I walk through that door? One day, we're told, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the harvest fields and pick up the stalks. 
when our life gets difficult, we do not have to jump the shark. We can live by faith and learn to be like Ruth. We can learn to be like those women who went and homesteaded in rural North Dakota. We can trust God, do the right thing, and know that ultimately we play to an audience of one. We're not here to impress our neighbors. We're not here to have somebody else look at us and say, wow, I wish I could do it your way. No, we're here to be pleasing to our Savior. He gave his life for you and for me. And now he invites us to live by faith and to learn to do the right thing. The point of Ruth is life does not have to jump the shark. In fact, it's much the opposite. Not jumping the shark, in fact, usually becomes our greatest legacy. Learning sometimes to do nothing but pray is doing everything. At times when things are difficult, learning to keep our mouth shut, famous Pastor Stan story. Now, it's not really a story, it's a saying. I never get myself in trouble when I keep my mouth shut. Do you know why I say that? Because I get myself in trouble when I open my mouth all the time. Ruth learned to trust God. And not jumping the shark, not just going out and doing something crazy, became her greatest legacy. As you go to the end of the the book of Ruth to chapter 4, we look in verse 13. We're told so, Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. Yes, it all does have a nice ending. It has some twists and turns before it gets there. Boaz sees her. He falls in love with her. He wants to marry her. He finds out there's somebody else who is a closer relative. He gives that person the opportunity to say, this young woman, you can marry her. And the guy says, no, I want nothing to do with that. And so Boaz and Ruth get married. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and listen to these words and has been better than seven sons. Do you hear what happens? Ruth, because she lives faithfully, leaves a legacy immediately for this woman whose life has gone really difficult, and now she's able to say, wow, because this daughter-in-law of mine lived a life of faith, what a blessing she's been to me. Folks, when we live by faith, we are a blessing to our family. Do you hear me? We can just love our family, care about them, do the right thing, and people will say, I am so glad this person's a member of my family. Sometimes our greatest legacy isn't what we do, it's just simply living faithfully. But her faithfulness also, we discover in verses 21 and 22, is that Ruth marries Boaz. They become the father and mother of Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of David. Not only was Ruth's legacy to her mother-in-law and to those who knew her, it gives us King David. This becomes the grandmother of King David. Now go read your New Testament, folks. This becomes the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus, our Savior. You hear me? When we live lives of faith, 
when we simply trust God when life is difficult, when we say, I do not need to jump the shark, I don't need to do something different, I don't need to manipulate circumstances, I am simply going to trust God and give him 100% of my life, I'm going to put this situation in his hands, not mine, I'm going to pray and I'm going to be faithful. What we discover is we not only are a blessing to those who know us, we are a blessing to future generations. And I don't know about you, but that matters to this pastor. I am thankful I come from a family where my grandfather had a drinking problem. And his brother did also. And they were lumberjacks in northern Ontario. And one day, David Stanley Mallory heard Judson White preach and got down on his knees and gave his life to Jesus and went to town to the little Methodist church and met Annie, my grandmother. They got married, and my grandfather said, I want to break the cycle of this family. And that's what this text teaches us. We do not need to jump the shark. There is another term. I'm just going to refer to it quickly. It's called growing the beard. It's a different way to respond to bad situations. In Star Trek The Next Generation, the TV show wasn't doing well. And they made some great decisions, and one of them is Commander Riker grew a new beard. And it was from that point on that Star Trek The Next Generation became a great TV show. Now, it wasn't jumping the shark ultimately and growing the beard that made the difference, but in both cases, it became the metaphor for making the right choice versus making the wrong choice. And folks, as people of faith, let's all just grow a beard. Let's trust God. Let's not jump the shark and do something crazy and think that we have to manipulate and that somehow all of the problems of the world rest on us. And if I don't act now, what's going to happen? Let's trust God. You came here today. You may have struggles in your life. Or you may know somebody who does. I'd like to invite members of our elder team. I'd also like to invite Lori Eldridge who's a retired pastor, and Nancy Allen, who's a retired pastor, both to come forward. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, there's something in your life where you're like, you know, I made a foolish decision, or I'm about to make a foolish decision, or somebody I know has made a crazy decision, or somebody in my family is about to make a tough and bad decision. Please come forward and let us have prayer with you, and let us stand together as we sing.